A spontaneous and unrehearsed interview. Hello, and welcome to the 94th episode of Curiosityness. I'm Travis DeRose, the host of the show, Curiosityness, which again is the show you're listening to. And this is a fun episode. This one is great. So I have on Dylan Taylor Lehman. He is the author of a book called Sealand, the true story of the world's most stubborn micronation and its eccentric royal family. So this is a true story about Sealand. If you've never heard of Sealand, buckle up because it's a fun story. So what Sealand is a, a on a, it's a small fort built during World War II off the coast of the UK. And there's a whole story, but essentially this guy, Roy Bates, hopped onto Sealand and hopped onto the fort and claimed it as Sealand, which is its own territory. He said it's its own territory, its own country. Sealand became a country and they have currency, they have postage, they have all kinds of stuff. It, it, it's such a fun, crazy story. It's crazy that it hasn't been made into a movie yet. So you're really going to love this. Uh, I mean, there's just so much that I could say that we're going to we're gonna learn. But uh, Roy Bates, the, the guy who did all this, is just a crazy guy. And Dylan does a great job of diving into this and explaining everything on a, a fun level that makes it easy to understand, but it's just a really exciting story. So that's enough. Let's get to the episode. All right, we're rolling. How you doing, Dylan? Fantastic. Thanks again for having me here. Yeah, heck yeah. Super. I'm like, I'm so excited to talk to you because uh, <laughs> this this book, man, this story is just like, it's such a fun story. I've been telling my, all my friends and family about this thing and they're they're pretty stoked to hear this conversation that we're about to have. So. Not Great. to hype it up too much, but, uh, you know, yeah, should be it's, good. Uh, I know I have to make sure I fulfill, you know, your, fill what you're looking for. <laughs> yeah, that's right, man. But, uh, I mean, there's no way this thing could disappoint. Such, it's just such a fun, interesting story. And, you know, sure. I'm, uh, thankful to you for, for writing a book about it and, uh, being, sharing it. So thank you. Yeah, it's a, some, a story I've been interested in kind of following from afar for quite a while. So, you know, needless to say, being able to write perhaps the authoritative uh, history of Sealand is definitely a dream come true. So, yeah, it's a cool. cool, been a very cool project for sure. Yeah, I was kind of, a, I like, I couldn't believe I'd never really heard of it. Like, it seems like I would have come across it at some point in my life. That's, and yeah, I mean, I guess maybe I'm kind of biased just cause I've kind of been living in a Sealandic headspace for a while, but I am kind of surprised that it, it isn't more widely known just given, uh, you know, kind of how outrageous its history is. So, yeah. um, yeah, I'm, I'm always, yeah, it's, it's cool to know when someone does know about it because you can kind of, you know, grow down a bit about this, this weird hidden little country. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, it's so fun. And I mean, you just bring it up and I, I've just been, you know, bringing up the story to everybody and they, everyone has so many questions of like, well, how the hell did they get this fort? How do they just get on there? You know, how do, do they have currency? You know, there's so many questions. So. Yeah. And I mean, I, that was definitely the impetus to write the book because it's same sort of thing. I just immediately had, you know, down to the most minute details, uh, you know, how they pulled this off. So again, you know, being able to see that firsthand and really uh, have license to bug them pretty extensively for those little details has been been cool too right so did you have did you were you able to contact like the Bates family to get some interviews or talk to them 
Yeah, I mean, the, um, you know, once I really, I, I kind of real. Well, I, I, I should say first that Prince Michael has self-published his own book, uh, and so I was very wary of like stepping on their toes and didn't want it to make it seem like I was trying to like usurp their story, right? Um, and so they're, they, you know, they were initially a little bit hesitant to to work with me for for exactly that reason, but. You know, Michael's book is kind of a more firsthand account. It's an autobiography. And so I kind of pitched this as like a journalistic counterpart to it, where I would provide some of the context that, you know, he didn't have room for in his book and kind of expand on all these crazy other um, side stories that um, just, you know, didn't really fit with his book. And so I think, you know, looking at it like that, they were a little more keen to to participate. Plus I bugged them essentially for like two years about it. So, you know, <laughs> I, I, they saw that I was, um, you know, pretty diligent and my, my intentions were pure. So, um, they, right. we eventually, um, you know, once I was like, Hey, by the way, I'm coming to England pretty soon. You know, they, they were happy to talk with me. Right. Cool. Well, no, that's good to hear that you sort of have their, their blessing, you know, with this book. Although, you know, when I, the first thing that Prince Michael said to me when I met him, you know, he opened the door to his apartment and he's like, ah, my nemesis. And so, you know, like, you know, that was, that was a bit intimidating, but it was all in good fun. Um, so, you know, once we got that out of the way, it was was pretty smooth sailing from there. Yeah. He seems like a, like a rough, like meeting him would be a little intimidating. Yeah, I didn't really know what to think. I mean, because, you know, certainly uh, anyone who knows about Ceiling, you know, they kind of have, the, you know, he's this larger than life character and this really kind of burly dude. But um, and that, that certainly came through because, I mean, you know, he and his family are professional fishermen outside of Sealand. So, sure. you know, obviously that's a pretty demanding profession. Um, but, no, they, they, you know, they, again, were very gracious in hosting me, like allowed me to picked their brain about all kinds of stuff, showed me some old artifacts and photos. So yeah, it was, it was a really cool experience being able to meet them a couple of times, actually. Cool, man. Very fun. So have you, did you get to go out to Sealand? Yeah. Uh, so what ended up happening was, uh, you know, of course they get bugged to, for visitors to be able to go out there like all the time. So I didn't, you know, I wanted to not like be that guy where the first thing I asked was going out there, but it just, sure. So happened that when I was, um, you know, I went to the UK to do this research without, I was trying not to get my hopes up, um, in terms of being able to visit out there, but in speaking with them and then, uh, his sons came over one day to speak with me as well. And they sort of offhandedly were just like, Oh, did you want to go to Sealand by the way? And I was like, uh, yes, Hell actually. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, it just so happened that so they live about two hours away from the easiest port to get to Sealand. Um, mm-hmm. And we were going, uh, my girlfriend and I, who, who went with me, we were going to go to this small town about two hours away to do research anyway and just stare at Sealand from the horizon or from the shore because you can see it on the horizon. Uh-huh. Um, but also the caretakers who take care of Sealand leave from there. And they were, I think, two days after I met with um, the Prince Michael's sons was when they were switching out the caretakers. So they're like, by the way, if you go to this little town, you can catch a ride on this fishing boat out to Sealand. And it just all like happened to work out. And so, um, you know, I tried to keep my cool when I was talking with them, but again, that just like somebody was looking out for me there because it all just fell into place, uh, pretty readily, which, you know, obviously made 
the book a million times better and just, you know, lifetime ambition fulfilled for me. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, I mean, after reading the book and, the, you know, learning about them so much, I mean, it's like going to Disneyland, you know, it's great. Yeah. For, yeah. I mean, you know, as I, I might've mentioned in the book, you know, it's like, I've been looking, studying this for so long that I could like kind of see the layout and like, you know, just felt like I knew the place, but of course being there is a totally different uh, experience altogether. But yeah, I mean, it was like stepping into a dream for sure. Right. Sure. Okay, well, we got. I think let's. We should dive into the story now because people. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, of I course. mean, I, I, there's there'll be an intro on here, so people listening should know kind of the the overall story. But let's. We're talking about all this stuff, but people don't even know it. So let's dive into it. Um, so I mean, this all starts with with a man named Roy Bates, right? Yeah, Roy Bates, uh, and I wish I could have met him because he he definitely is just this like you know character from like a bygone era. But he was a World War II vet. Um, really, you know, he'd seen a lot of action there, did been in all these crazy adventures, you know, at one point said he enjoyed being <laughs> in the war, which is kind of hard to imagine. Um, but, you know, coming home to the UK once the, once World War II came to an end, um, you know, it was hard to find a profession that fulfilled the excitement that he was used to. And so fortunately, these old forts, which were built uh, to shoot down incoming Nazi bombers during World War II, uh, he, you know, again, you could see these from the horizon from where he lived. And so that sparked, um, you know, a new, uh, a new plan for him that just led, you know, probably where, you know, to somewhere he didn't even anticipate. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about those forts then. Cause so these were built for world war two. Right. Yeah. There are two sets of two different designs of these forts designed by the same guy named Guy Monsell. And they're pretty strange looking structures. He, his favorite medium was concrete and he built all kind built and designed all kinds of just really intense, brutalist structures, including concrete boats, which was pretty astounding to me Jeez, that you could yeah. do that. <laughs> uh, but the idea was to create these stationary forts kind of in the middle of the sea, again, to shoot down bombers, submarines, um, you know, in an area that, they probably wouldn't expect it. And this was at the height of the Blitzkrieg. So it was a pretty critical uh, defense. And so what he did, he came up with this crazy design uh, where these two hollow concrete pillars built on a hollow concrete pontoon with a metal superstructure bridging them across the top. They floated them out to where they wanted them to be in the ocean and then filled these uh, the lower pontoon with water. So they sank in place, creating these stationary forts that stuck out of the water. Right. And so they're just sitting on the ocean floor. Yeah. I mean, at that part of the North sea, the, that part of the North sea isn't particularly deep. So yeah, they're straight up just sitting on the ocean floor and stick up about 40 to 60 feet, depending on the tide. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And then what there was a, like there was a story of them sinking one of them or the first one, I think. And it just went like they sunk one and it just got super crooked or something like that. Yeah. I mean, the like when it would flood, it would, you know, the water would, would kind of go to one side. So it would, it would list and, you know, one half would sink and then the other half of the, as it all filled up and they hadn't tested this out before. So, and they had soldiers on these forts as they were sinking. them. So yeah, when <laughs> the pontoon started filling and it just sort of leaned over very precariously, uh, you know, I'm sure that was a just terrifying experience, but it all sank, uh, 
without issue and you know they they were able to replicate that with the other forts good yeah this got a little dicey there um but then yeah these things just they had people living on them and they had you know artillery on them and stuff like that right yeah and i think um the thing that might surprise people about sealand what would become sealand the world's smallest country is just how relatively small these forts are i mean the the superstructure on the top i think it's like maybe two tennis courts side by side and the the circular pontoons that are hollow with all the the seven layers of rooms in them are probably no more than i would say probably 20 feet across so altogether it's you know little more than like a a, probably a big house but they did have uh you know 120 uh, marines living out there at a time which was not only was there really no easy easy way on or off but you know it's just incredibly claustrophobic too right yeah yeah so this is it right yeah yeah that's um one there are four of these forts that was previously known as ruff's tower before it was rechristened Sealand. but uh those are the yeah four of the monself naval forts yeah man yeah look at that thing it's just <laughs> it's literally just two columns with a platform on top, like super simple, but that's, you know, that's all they needed it to be for this fort. Right. And then, you know, of course had anti-aircraft guns and um, other pieces of weaponry up there. And, um, you know, as I mentioned, I think, you know, being out there really drove home again, just how relatively small these forts are and the walkways going between the levels are I mean, probably no more than, I would say three and a half feet wide. So, and there's the stairs are incredibly steep. So you're under the surface of the water in these, essentially a concrete tomb with no way up aside from a super steep and super skinny um, set of metal stairs, which was just like, you know, again, I mean, you, you know, you're out there getting in fights with, you know, airplanes. Like if that thing blows up and you're under there, that was, you're done for. I mean, that was genuinely pretty. I'm not especially claustrophobic, but that was like, that was pretty intense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. Yeah. And these like the rooms, cause people would sleep in those columns and there's, there's not, there's no windows. There's nothing. Right. And that's what you can hear the water lapping against the side of it, which is kind of a cool <laughs> sound. Um, but again, you know, yeah, I mean, being under there and like one of them, above one of the columns is the generator with, you know, there's a huge diesel generator. And yeah. so if that exploded and something caught on fire, it's like, it's like hard <laughs> to even think about really. Oh man. So for the way they would just build these things of like, you know, almost zero regard for the safety of people there, you know? Right. And, you know, uh, being out there was pretty mind numbing. And so people would, you know, start to go a little stir crazy. So that from what I, you know, what I read, the commanding officers would make people take up hobbies and, you know, Uh, do things to keep their minds stimulated. So they didn't completely lose it while they were out there. Right. Yeah. And then how many people did you say would stay on these when they were used as forts? Uh, up to 120. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah. That's like, it's like, I had a hard time even kind of imagining where all those people would be at. Cause I guess some people would just have to kind of, you know, you'd be in one place. So maybe that's in one of the columns, like tending to, I don't know, whatever, what you, whatever you'd be doing in these various levels. Right. Jeez, man. 
And then, uh, yeah, and then all these things are all just like off the shore of England. Pretty, they're pretty close to England. Yeah, a couple of them have since uh, collapsed. One of them was blown up by the government, uh, so no one else would take over these forts. Right. And then the um, other set of forts is a different construction. They look like those um, creatures from War of the Worlds, these kind of tall, spindly, or AT-AT walkers from like Star Wars. Uh, and those have also kind of fallen apart, though some of them are still still standing, albeit you know, in fairly bad shape after what 75 years 78 years yeah right yeah damn these things are pretty old when you think of it like mm-hmm. that yeah mm-hmm. man okay so should we talk about pirate radio now sure okay yeah so give it can you give me an overview of just you know what that is how it all started uh well as mentioned well yeah as mentioned roy bates um you know was kind of looking for a more adventurous life to lead, you know, money-making venture than the various kind of projects he was involved with, which were pretty interesting in their own right, you know, like a rubber fin factory and uh, harvesting white weed, this kind of strange plant-like thing that's used in bouquets. But at any rate, um, at the same time in the UK and starting in the 1960s, there was this phenomenon called pirate radio because the BBC was the only licensed radio broadcaster in the UK at that time. Mm-hmm. Seriously, like there were no other radio stations on the airwaves, which again is kind of hard to even wrap your head around. But yeah, that meant that listeners were, of course, at the mercy of whatever the BBC wanted to play. And although they were known to play a few kind of pop programs here and there, it, there definitely wasn't any sort of consistency. And so to get around that, all of these enterprising young rock and rollers uh start you know took to the water and built radio stations on on old ships or on these forts which were perfect for that yeah and so they started doing these pirate broadcasting or pirate broadcasting which became huge cultural phenomenon i mean like the beatles recorded greetings for some of the bigger stations i mean and ultimately you know some fairly substantial amounts of money were involved because again this was like the only other alternative and it was playing the most popular music of the day. So it got to be a pretty well-regarded uh, phenomenon, you know, not to say nothing of just how fun it must've been to be kind of engaged in this like Robin Hoodian <laughs> type pursuit. And so all that to say, Roy Bates, uh, who wasn't even necessarily a fan of rock and roll, uh, still of course caught wind of this and, uh, took it upon himself to put together his own radio station. And as it happened, he lived not far from some of these forts, realized that it would be the perfect headquarters for an offshore station, theoretically outside of British jurisdiction. And so that's what, uh, you know, he muscled his way onto one of these forts. And um, that's where Radio Essex began, which is what he called his station. Right. And then so why, so was the reason that they would do these offshore or on a ship or something just because if they put the, if they were broadcasting from England, they would just be, they would just be shut down? Right. I mean, there were a few laws on the books that um, gave, of course, British authority to govern their airwaves within British jurisdiction. Uh, at the time, though, the territorial limit for any country was about three miles. And so since some of these forts were three or more miles out to sea. The thinking was that, of course, we're in international waters, we're but close enough to broadcast, so it's a perfect space. And same thing, 
with the ships. Obviously, we'll just ship, uh, sail beyond this limit and broadcast there, and there's nothing they could do. The British authorities could do about it. Okay. So what? Yeah, like because that seems uh, like I get that thinking, but to me, like, what, what was England's thought on that? Because it seems like they're, you know, maybe you're broadcasting from here, but you're throwing your signal into our airspace. Exactly. I think initially, and some of the um, paperwork related or the, you know, communiques in the British archives relating to Sealand touched on this. It's like, wait a second, what, how do we handle this? Because they genuinely are in international waters, but like you said, they're broadcasting into the UK. So, so what do we do about it? And so there were a couple of years of like head scratching or at least, you know, fairly, Definitely some some penalties uh, given to these DJs, but nothing too serious. But then um, one DJ killed another, and there were fights on 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 these forts for control of them, which seemed you know starting to get a little hairy. And so the British government ramped up its efforts to to clamp down on this, and so they passed some laws that made um, you know funding one of these stations a crime, supplying them with equipment or food or fuel. Uh, the listeners' contracts with the BBC, you could buy BBC transmitters, you know, allowed theoretically the government to confiscate it if they found out you were listening to illegal stuff. So although they couldn't do anything to stop people from broadcasting in international waters, they could, there were other ways to to get at them that didn't require the government to go out into international waters. So they really seized on that to to try to stop this. Okay. No, that makes sense. So they kind of were able to indirectly kind of at least limit them. Um, right. Okay. And then, so these, I mean, these forts are just like after the UK was done using them, they're just kind of sitting there vacant. Right. And that, that factored into the somewhat confusing state of affairs as to who had control of them, because theoretically, you know, if you build something in international waters, you're obligated to dismantle it once you're done. Since some of these forts were in international waters and the UK left them there, um, were they at fault somehow? And, you know, uh, you know, kind of had to deal with the consequences. But on the other hand, it's like these forts really were in water, international waters. They sat abandoned for almost two decades before these radio pirates took control of them. So, I mean, they weren't really, nobody really cared about them until this pirate radio phenomenon happened. And again, all of the kind of battling out there that was required to, for it to allow these individual stations to hold on to their forts. Yeah. (laughs) That's so weird. Yeah. They're like just sitting there empty and then they become like pretty valuable. Basically you need one. I mean, almost like, uh, priceless to a certain degree because it's like how many freestanding sturdy structures in international waters are there that <laughs> yeah, they're right. just sort of ripe for the taking. And so, yeah, I mean, that really, uh, part of what, you know, sort of solidified Roy Bates's reputation as a tough guy was the length that he and his crews would go to, to hold, not only hold on to their fort, but take over, um, if the, you know, long story short, they eventually took over a second fort that would become Sealand. And, you know, the, the wherewithal it took to do that was pretty, pretty remarkable and lots of bloodied lips and black eyes and, you know, even (laughs) use of a flamethrower and Molotov cocktails in these battles. So again, it was like, (laughs) 
kind of a fun adventure, but also the stakes were pretty high. And, you know, again, the British government recognized that, which is kind of, you know, made the whole thing snowball into something a bit more serious. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, these guys were like, they were hardcore about keeping these things and protecting them. Um, okay. Yeah. So Roy Bates, he, he decides to open up his, his, or start his pirate radio called Radio Essex. And he does it on one of the forts called Knock, Knock John, right? Right. Okay. And then, so he gets that actually up and running, but then what happens to that? And so ultimately uh, he is fined for broadcasting because it was determined that this fort was just squeaked by the three mile limit. So it was within British territory. So he was fined and punished for that. And so that led him to look at Ruff's tower, which would become Sealand because that was almost seven miles out to sea irrefutably in international waters. And so that was even more valuable than knock John because it was um, truly in international waters, which, um, you know, once once uh, Radio Essex original location was shut down, they sailed out to Ruff's Tower and took it over. And again, you know, a fairly impressive show of force. And so that's what that's how they ended up on the fort that would become Sealand. Yeah. So there, so there was somebody else occupying Ruff's Tower at the time, but they just kind of took it over. Yep. And the legend goes that these uh, hapless, because again, you know, all these radio these DJs working out there were you know. 19 to 23, you know, fairly, fairly young dudes just living the rock and roll lifestyle. And so in the middle of the night, when these, this big, these big burly guys just scale the side of this fort while, you know, you're trying to cook dinner on a little tin or, uh, you know, a little heating tin. It's like, Oh yeah, that's, you know, okay, sure. You can have it. Just don't throw (laughs) us over the side. So, right. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of people also said that they really, you know, Roy was just such a like, um, almost like legendary figure because, you know, taking over one of these forts, all of a sudden he pops up over the side wearing like an immaculate suit, like James Bond or something. So just, you know, he kind of crafted this, uh, legend for himself for being so antagonistic, not only toward other radio pirates, but also toward the British government who quickly kind of zeroed in on him and, you know, really tried to put this, uh, Ruff's tower occupation to an end uh, before it got out of hand again. Right. Yeah. They weren't, they weren't into having all this stuff going on, even if it was in international waters. Especially because of that. Yeah, definitely. Right. Um, okay. So they get on, they, he finally gets on uh, Ruff's tower, but he, he doesn't actually start a, another station there, another radio station, does he? No, by that point, um, the BBC finally ro- wised up and was like, wait, why don't we just open some more radio stations for more variety? And so they, <laughs> so that's what they did. They started BBC, uh, two, three, and four, which is still of course in operation today. And they poached a bunch of the DJs from these pirate radio stations and gave them much better paying jobs. And so the whole radio fire phenomenon just kind of came to a natural end. Um, and so that, around the same time that Roy was going to get another station up and going. So it just wasn't worth it really. But, um, you know, he did win the, he, he was still holding on to this fort. And so that kind of set the stage for whatever would come next out there. 
Yeah. So now, so he's kind of got this fort, and then when does is that when he kind of starts to formulate the idea of of sea land and and doing that whole thing? Uh, yeah. The idea was, I mean, he he was you know again a, a, a patriotic soldier, a war hero. You know, he fight in right. a war again for England as soon as he was called. He would say, uh, you know, so he was he was a little miffed that the British government was coming down so hard on him for simply trying to you know, provide for his family and provide, you know, make some money for himself. And so I think, you know, what would become, you know, the, the idea of starting your own country wasn't necessarily the initial idea, but it was more just like, what can we do to give this fort a bigger footprint or, you know, kind of throw our power around more. And so naturally, you know, granting it some kind of sovereign status would endow it with that kind of like, <laughs> just power i guess so it was it was just more like whatever we're going to do next we're going to give it statehood and that'll sort of empower us on a on a larger stage yeah yeah because like what was i mean what was his motivation or kind of his goal like after the whole pirate radio thing kind of went down why why did he even stay on this thing uh and and that's of course what i asked his family was like what what made him so stubborn about turning this into you know, putting all this blood, sweat, and tears into Sealand, as I'm sure we'll talk about, it was, you know, just a, another crazy endeavor to get into that's endured to this day. Um, I, you know, I think it was partly stubbornness, just like, you tell me I can't do this, well, I will do it, by yeah. golly. So part of that, but also I think, you know, he was a pretty entrepreneurial guy, so it's like, I do, I have this stable structure in international waters, it's got to be worth something. Right. Um, you know, and, and during the radio pirate area, the British government uh, tried to buy him off the fort. And so he knew it was worth some amount of money. So I think, again, he was just sort of sticking it out until he came across whatever would come next. But, um, you know, I think just sort of out of out of stubbornness, it was like, fine, I'm going to turn this into my own territory then. And that's naturally sort of led to the idea of sea land. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I could, I could see that if you're on that thing in international waters, it's pretty damn rare to have something like that. So there's got to be some sort of opportunity. And and totally. I mean, yeah, he was always looking fine and stuff, which we'll get into. But okay, so he kind of decides to turn Sealand into its own thing. He he decides to turn it into a principality, specifically, right? Mm-hmm. So what, like, what what is a principality? How did he decide upon that? What's that whole story? Uh, I. I, I believe principality is a fairly like outdated form of government by this point, although there still are a few principalities uh, in the world. But it's essentially like a monarchy, just kind of with different titles, again, from my understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, governed by a prince and princess, there's no king or queen, but they function as such in that they create and enforce all the rules and sort of mold their kingdom according to their... Uh, worldview and so that's what that's the idea for principality we're going to be prince and princess we're going to have full sovereignty or full reign over this and so we'll just call it the principality of sealand right yeah and so he makes himself the prince and his wife becomes a princess right yep and that's that's kind of that was the family joke was like you know how many people can brag about giving their wives their own (laughs) their own kingdom and island um and so that yeah you know, now they were able to call themselves prince and princess. Right. Yeah. Man, it's so cool. And they just kind of, um, 
if I remember correctly, they they picked to do a principality just because it was way easier than trying to set up some other form of of, of jurisdiction or whatever, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, one, if you're the kind of final first and final word on the law, it's like, yeah, you don't you don't have to waste time with all these levels of government and creating all of these. You know, of course, they do have a constitution, but yeah, it just it just greatly simplified getting things up and running. Right. Yeah, and so what is the what was the process to get things up and running? Is it like a you submit a application to something, or what's the deal with that? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, of course, he, he consulted with his lawyer to see what their legal, uh, you know, what legal right they had to do this, and that was, and that's kind of what's made Sealand a lot different than other, um, you know, experiments in nationhood or micro nationhood. Right, uh, is that it does on on paper for sure have a you know pretty interesting claim to sovereignty and so that that slight ambivalence the fact that it is in international waters that it was abandoned that it's um you know a, a, essentially a permanent structure kind of gives it a little more latitude to make some kind of claim about it versus something that might you know that might be a little um less permanent and so there is a pretty interesting academic exercise when you consider what makes a state and how sealand fulfills the qualifications that are generally applied to other recognized nations so um you know there's a lot of academic debate about that i came across a bunch of cool scholarly articles uh you know getting really serious about uh debates about sealand's nationhood both claims for and against, and you know, citing and you know, just really antiquated case law and all kinds of other stuff to to try to make heads or tails of of what this you know what status this old fort actually has. Yeah, like what the hell is this thing? I mean, that's kind of really the the trick is to kind of get other people or other nations to recognize that, like, recognize Sealand as a nation, right? Sure. Yeah, and you you know, pretty. You know, as soon as this notion that Sealand was declared, which, by the way, was September 2nd, 1967, is Sealand's Independence Day. And there's a, a flag raising ceremony and friends and supporters and family were on the fort to to inaugurate the country. Um, they, you know, the British government, you know, v- very quickly dismissed <laughs> this claim of sovereignty, but the Sealanders nonetheless got to work. Um, you know, issuing stamps and coins and other trappings of statehood and then trying to engage with other uh, governments to try to gain some kind of recognition, governments both recognized and of other disputed territories. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, well, initially the, the, the people just living on Sealander are, are, you know, Roy Bates and his wife and then, and hit their two children, right? That's right. Yeah, so they're they're just they're the citizens of, of Sealand to start. Yeah, and they you know some of the um, crew from the Radio Pirate Days stayed on and became Sealanders and helped get the project up and running. And I definitely should point out how critical Princess Joan, Roy's wife Joan, was in getting not only the Sealand going but also the radio stations because she was definitely you know an organizational uh, presence and very very smart in a business sense and very helpful and just sort of, you know, coordinating all the crazy stuff that was required to, to run an offshore radio station and then her own country. And then of course, acclimating to living out in the middle of the 
notoriously rough sea with wind just slamming into this place all the time and you know yeah. water freezing when it got cold and you know really just putting up with all of that for for years until it got to be a relatively comfortable place to live and same, same with the kids too i mean you know they would once you're out there you're kind of mercy at the mercy of the weather and if the weather turns you're kind of stuck until it gets better and so they you know, were out there for weeks past when they were supposed to be initially picked up to the point where they had to distill uh, seawater and mix it with just flour to make something edible. And so, yeah, I mean, there were, yeah, very, it it was not, you know, it's kind of a romantic notion, but that's what Penny Bates, who is um, Roy and Joan's oldest uh, kid, their, their, their first daughter, you know, said like, she used to hate it. She would just, just wish on the way out there. She wished she would, you know, some tragedy would befall them. So they wouldn't have to stay out there, but you know, it also definitely kind of toughened them up and they look back on that experience now as, you know, a pretty unique childhood and something, you know, not a lot of people have gotten to experience. So, um, although they might not have thought so at the time, it definitely is a, you know, made for pretty, pretty worthwhile and adventure filled life. Right. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, I mean, so obviously, you know, it was, this thing was rough as a fort living on here and then it's been abandoned for 20 years and everything. And now they're on here living there, you know, for weeks at a time. Like you said, what is like, what are the living conditions like on this thing? Like, how do they have, what are their utilities like? How do they get water? All that stuff. Fortunately, they had, you know, some of the people who helped out with the radio pirate era were pretty mechanically inclined. And so they got these antique or not antique, I guess they're from world war two at the time, uh, these diesel generators up and running. But, okay. uh, yeah, I mean, it was nothing short of a pretty miserable place to be for quite a while. Cause again, you're at the mercy of the weather. It's, it's freezing cold and windy and rainy all the time. Um, it wasn't sealed up properly. And yeah, I mean, even today it's a big concrete and metal structure certainly not very you know geared for cold weather but you know little by little they brought cooking uh, kitchen appliances you know beds sofas books you know just whatever you have them whatever you would need to make it a little more habitable and so uh you know they could stop passing out <laughs> due to the cold and you know have a little more a uh, little less rough go of it so uh, you know gradually to the point where where it's at today where it's, you know, the kitchen is indistinguishable from that of any in the, you know, nice home and they have workout equipment and the internet and furnished bedrooms and stuff like that. So, um, took a lot of work for sure, but gradually it became a little more comfortable place to be. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So here's kind of like, yeah. Is this what the kitchen looked like when you were there or is this older? Uh, no, that, yeah, that's essentially it. And that picture to your left of the, the living room with the fight with the wood stove, um, the one below that. Oh, that one right there. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I actually, I actually took that photo. So did you, um, yeah, that's just, uh, as you can see, there's that, that wood stove in the background, some, some plush couches and, and TVs and books and movies and stuff like that. Uh, a fan <laughs> if you need it so right yeah i mean yeah. just looking at this it just looks like you know kind of a regular maybe a little rinky dink but just kind of a, a living room family room type of thing yeah i mean it, it kind of the whole thing struck me as like if you 
it's kind of like a furnished like cellar <laughs> like where it's you know it's definitely um not cozy necessarily in a traditional sense but it's not uncomfortable either it's just like yeah kind of mm-hmm. like you're in a nice <laughs> a nice basement really right yeah yeah and then so with it were like were all the bedrooms in did they sleep in those columns then too yeah yeah there's uh you know the prince's various rooms throughout there there's a guest room there's rooms for the caretaker that they've outfitted kind of to their liking i mean you know that one of the caretakers mike was telling me you know he'll see like cool pieces of art at a yard sale and be like oh wow that'll look great in my room in sealand and (laughs) you know getting old um you know just kind of leftovers from like construction projects and using those to you know, for Sealand too. I mean, it's all, it's kind of patched together, but it all, it all looks cool. And, and again, it's definitely not an uncomfortable place to be for the most part. Right. Yeah. Cool. Okay. And then, so they have, they have their generators for, for power and stuff. And then how do they get like potable water? Do they have to just bring that on? Oh, right. Yeah. They, yeah. It's all every, you know, all their food, drinking water, uh, all the amenities they need, everything has to be brought out um, on a boat or by a helicopter, but that's generally prohibitively expensive. But yeah, I mean, when the caretakers go out there, they'll bring, you know, two to three weeks worth of food uh, and booze and water and stuff, because that's, that's really the only way you're going to get it. Um, though they yeah. of course have, you know, a cellar that's stocked with, you know, uh, non-perishable goods for, quite a while but yeah i mean yeah everything they you know drinkable water definitely needs to be brought out there right man oh man and then do they have i mean i guess like all their trash and and sewer and stuff too what do they do with all that i'm i believe the toilet flushes into the ocean so that you know there's that that kind of (laughs) takes care of that um but yeah I i would expect that all their all their garbage and you know stuff just goes back with them okay yeah makes yeah sense. when they go back to shore yeah trade-off right yeah yeah because something like because they didn't really live on here full-time they still had a house you know on shore right well uh, i mean roy you know again touching on his stubbornness i mean he would live out there for months at a time like just at just for the sheer doggedness of it and michael bates i think said his longest consecutive stretch was six months and then Oof. uh an estimated you know, 20 cumulative years of his life, uh, spent out on the forest. So they, they put some serious time in out there for sure. Right. Uh, they don't live, nobody, the caretakers live out there, you know, switching ideally two week shifts, but yeah, the Sealandic family, um, will spend some time out there, but they don't live out there cause they're, you know, they're fishermen in England. They have their own fishing and canning business and, mm-hmm. you know, spouses and kids and you know everything that they need to take care of and back in the uk right sure well yeah and then they i mean you mentioned ter- caretakers they would they always had somebody on here just to i mean to you know take care of it but also because like at least in the early days people were trying to take this thing away from them all the time right yeah i mean that the, it never really lost its uh you know value for people who you know saw a business opportunity out there so yeah i mean they somebody had to <clears throat> be out there all the time to fend off invaders and make sure you know it stayed in the bates family's hands right 
Yeah, because I mean, because the first kind of incident was uh, was what England was trying to saying they needed to destroy it or something like that. Yeah, there were all kinds of um, raids and ideas for taking over the fort hatched by the British government. I mean, you know, involving like Marines going out in boats and helicopters swarming the place. And, uh, you know, they tried to get a former radio associate to, to clan, you know, in a very clandestine maneuver, take over the fort. So they were very serious about getting the baits off of there because they just saw it as nothing but a problem and would only grow to be, more of a problem so that was kind of a surprising thing i uncovered in my research was just how serious they were in and or how seriously they considered this threat and the lengths they were prepared to go to to get them off there but they eventually kind of realized like somebody's gonna get hurt if not killed whether it's somebody from the the sea landers or somebody in them from the british government so they eventually kind of backed off of their uh you know really trying trying hard to get them off right yeah well yeah and like because the, they're the kids even like michael bates they're walking around with guns on their on their hips all the time right yeah and i mean you know they've made no had no bones about shooting warning shots at people or you know yeah. waving around a pistol if somebody was getting too close so yeah they based on you know how aggressive some invaders uh, had been in the past i mean they, they took all of that pretty seriously right yeah yeah, that's crazy. And then, so how do you, because looking at that thing, you know, it's it's so high up in the air. How, how do you get on and off of that platform? Uh, originally, there was this, uh, it looked kind of like um, scaffolding built on the outside. It was like, you know, a set of stairs, zigzag stairs that you would, you could hop off a boat and climb up. That's long since rusted away. And so the only way on Sealand for the past few decades, aside from a helicopter, uh, is they have a mechanical winch up top that lowers like what looks like a little wooden swing down at you. And so you kind of have to gently hop from a, you know, moving boat onto this swing and they, they just bring you right up top. And then <laughs> one of the caretakers is up there and they kind of have a rope attached to the end of it that they swing you back onto the deck. So for, it's about a minute, just over a minute long ride, you know, you, it's kind of like a, a carnival ride where you're just, kind of at the mercy of this machine and high up in the air, but you know, very beautiful views and it's quite peaceful. Um, and, and not nearly as scary as it looks, but I mean that, that again, I mean, if the weather's bad, you know, you can't be doing that (laughs) in rough seas. So, uh, um, you know, yeah. Jesus. And that's what you did. You got to do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Man. God, that's so funny. That just yeah, and, lift you up on a seat. Yeah, and the and the interesting thing is like, um, you know, the boat like so you, we sailed out there on this rickety old lobster boat, um, and these guys, these fishermen were going on their way past Sealand to get their lobsters, and so they were dropping off the caretaker. They have the system worked out, and um, you know, they get close enough for you to get on the swing, but as soon as you're on, they start sailing away because the current they don't want to get pushed into the these huge columns right and so you know you're up in the air and the boat, boat's like gone so you're just like looking straight down on <laughs> the water and it you know just does like a little circle around sea land to prepare the next person to go up but right. yeah i mean you're they're just dangling there for a little while and 
um, not frequently, but it has uh, broken before leaving people, you know, kind of like stranded <laughs> while they fix it. Uh, but yeah, the, my ride was, was pretty seamless and so no problems there. Right. Man, I love that. It's just, it just seems so funny, but I mean, it makes sense. Practical. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then they, so they have their own, they have, there's a, how, how did they come across the name Sealand? How did they pick that? Just, I mean, it, it's about, there is no real explanation. It's land in the sea. It's that's, like just, the, that's what it is. Just a, a simple, straightforward name. And, and that's that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's fair enough, I guess. Easy to remember right. too. Um, right. And they have their flag. They, they made their flag basically right when they kind of, you know, announced sea land, right? Yeah. And that the, the cover of the book is from that flag raising ceremony, that initial independence day flag raising ceremony. And, um, the flag they had a local sailmaker make this nice flag for them. So yeah, mm-hmm. and then they have they they made a little bit of their own currency too, didn't they? Yeah, there've been various uh, or Sealand coins minted in various denominations throughout the years, uh, and I think as soon as um, 1968 or 69, so a year or two after it was founded, they they issued silver coins. Um, so yeah, I got to work right away doing that. Right. Yeah. I mean, what, like, what were they doing with that stuff? What were they buying? Uh, I think, um, you know, was, they certainly wouldn't have turned down the opportunity to use that as, in some kind of real <laughs> transaction. Right. I think, you know, it was, it was to raise money for Sealand, but, uh, as far as their, you know, they issued some, their first stamps around the same time, um, you know, within a year or two of its founding and the idea, they were very serious about trying to use these stamps. Uh, to enter the, you know, kind of global postal stream. And so they worked out this plan with um, a guy from Belgium who flew to Sealand in a helicopter, picked up the first bag of Sealandic mail with Sealandic stamps, and he was going to take it back to Belgium to kind of surreptitiously <laughs> put it into the Belgian postal service and then distribute it, you know, throughout the world. And, sure. you know, some letters were slipped through the cracks, but that didn't quite go unnoticed so unfortunately um you know you can't really use sealand stamps like that these days but they they did certainly try like make a genuine effort to try to pull that off right yeah i mean that would look good i mean if people are accepting your stamps you must be a a sovereign nation right yeah and that's you know it's like while they're waiting for you know recognition from you know germany perhaps or or South Africa or something, you know, they're also trying to pull off these smaller scale recognition, you know, um, smaller scale uh, bits of recognition, whether it be stamps or using currency or uh, something like that. Right. Yeah. And then, I mean, they even, I mean, it's kind of jumping ahead, but now they sell like, uh, that's the thing too, that shocked me is they're still around today. Right. Yeah. And that's that's so what's so compelling for sure. 60, or fifties, uh, three years. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, you kind of see this and just think it's kind of like, uh, you know, sixties, they, their people were crazy back then and they just did it for a couple <laughs> right. of years, you know, right. but they've been around for over 50 years. It's crazy. Yeah. And it's, I mean, you know, Prince Michael started hanging out with the, on the radio station when he was, you know, 12, 13, 14. So every era of his own life has been also, involved with sealand so you know he he grew up with sealand from from a very early age and it's that's what's been kind of cool to see too just 
you know, each decade kind of has its own theme and tone, if you will. And that's reflected in the pictures and you see, um, you know, Michael as a kid, you see him as a kind of scrappy 20 year old, you know, he gets married and has his own kids. And again, that's all, that's all kind of chronicled, um, you know, in conjunction with Sealand's own history as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, um, yeah, Michael's the son of Roy, Roy Bates, if we right. mention that for people listening, but yeah, Michael kind of really, really embraced this, but the, uh, their daughter just wasn't, she wasn't super into it, huh? Yeah. And that's what, you know, she's like, and it was fortunately enough, I was able to speak with her. Her name's Penny. She's 70 now. Uh, you know, and she's like, she's like, I don't blame myself. You know, she's like, I was 18, 19 years old. I don't want to stay on this like cold piece of concrete when I could be doing whatever it is, you know, 20 year olds do like that's, yeah, right. um, you know, but, uh, but again, you know, I think we talked about this earlier, you know, I think looking back on it, she's definitely kind of proud of her unique upbringing and, uh, was glad to put in the time that she did, but, um, you know, quickly realized that standing out there with a shotgun <laughs> defending this, uh, fort was not, not the life she wanted to lead necessarily. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. Yeah. It's so unique, man. It's yeah. It's, I bet it's fun to reflect on that and, and look back at that, that you had that as a child or that was your experience growing up and stuff. And, and you could probably feel proud of it even I would imagine, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe the actual experience and, and day-to-dayness of it is not, is not quite so uh, fun. Yeah. Yeah. One of those character building things that you, it's hard to find the value in at the time for sure. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, so they, they kind of always had like, uh, Roy always kind of had ideas and plans to develop sea land or, or different, you know, different ventures to make money on that thing. Right. Yeah. And that was again, sort of the idea from the beginning. It's like, how can we, build this up more and more and you know what what opportunities are available for us and you know there are ideas to turn it into a hotel or a way station for you know travelers or just some other kind of venture and so that's how they you know eventually got into this partnership with some uh germans and dutchmen to do just that turn it into you know expand its footprint turn it into something bigger um and you know in fact there's um oil wells out in the North sea. And so there was a, some thought there that like, is this area of the North sea where Sealand is, could we drill for oil there? And uh, sure. the answer is no, it's not a particularly oil rich part of the sea, but that was part of, that was like something that was considered. And so that, you know, the seventies were characterized at first by um, some really concerted efforts by the Sealanders and their their German friends to gain recognition and really elevate its status in the international community. And the Germans, you know, I guess drawing on that stereotype of of German efficiency, just bombarded like you know the government of every country in the world and the UN with diplomatic uh, over you know diplomatic uh, missives and like you know attempts at mutual recognition and stuff like that. And so. Um, you know, I think that was certainly a lot of work for the Bates family to take on on top of their other concerns. So initially this partnership, um, was pretty, was pretty worthwhile for a couple of years. I mean, it seemed like, yeah, I mean, they're, we're in this together to, to turn this into the next, whatever comes next, this next big thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Cause I mean, you can just looking at that thing. I mean, you would just start to 
your imagination just goes of like, let's turn this into a sweet hotel with this ocean view and we could get a casino out there, all this stuff. Yeah, take advantage of international waters, you know, fairly, um, you know, kind of governed only by your own, your own preferences, I guess. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's so it's, it, it's just so fun to kind of think of what you could do. And of course that's what they were all thinking of, but then, so what, so the German investors kind of come on, but what's, what's the story of that? How does that play out? Um, well, as mentioned, you know, at first it was, a, it seemed like a pretty fruitful partnership. Um, but what the Bates family didn't know at the time was that a lot of these Germans were straight up like con men who had, you know, been facing all kinds of other charges unrelated charges in their home countries i mean definitely oh, some slippery characters and so that eventually um kind of came to light and you know when it they re- you know the british government too realized like they're not just trying to build this up they're trying to perhaps turn this into some kind of offshore banking endeavor or some kind of tax haven of dubious legality and so you know the germans had grander plans than what they wanted um you know what they wanted the Bates family involved with so they eventually launched uh, a gambit to take over the fort for themselves right yeah and that was that's kind of the big uh i don't know one of the big incidents there where michael got kidnapped right yeah and that's that's a a pivotal event in sealand history in, in 1978 he was out there by himself uh, long story short, a helicopter lands with some of the Germans that he recognized, um, you know, from his parents working with before, but they quickly locked him in this iron closet and then eventually tied him up, beat him up and dropped him off in Holland uh, without any money or passport Jesus. and took over the fort for themselves. And so Michael had to make his way back to the UK, tell his parents what had happened. Um, and at first they were very upset with him for not putting up more of a fight to hold on to the fort. <laughs> uh, but once they kind of got over that initial shock, you know, they got together some of the, some tough guys and, and staged their own counter coup to this uh, attempted German takeover. Right. Yeah. I mean, to me, I mean, it makes sense, but to me, it's just, uh, it's pretty remarkable how, just how, um, how like, brute force it is where these guys are just coming in and you know just literally capture and and kidnap michael and take over the fort you know and take over sea land and you know i think it's something that you kind of i guess would gradually get acclimated to you know you you get into some fist fights when you're running this radio station and then more invaders come and you have to shoot at them and then you get kidnapped and so it kind of just naturally the next step was like well we got to take back take the fort back over so that's of course we're going to do that and as it happened they um roy knew a guy who was a stunt pilot uh stunt helicopter pilot who'd been in some james bond movies and so they had a a helicopter at their disposal they gathered up a couple of hunting rifles and a shotgun and some uh wartime pistols that roy had had dismantled and hidden at his mom's house uh and yeah, they stayed, you know, in the wee morning hours, they flew out there, flew low on the horizon as to, you know, hide themselves. And all of a sudden, like out of a movie, they just, this helicopter rises up, these avenging angels tumble out of the sides with a shotgun tied around their neck. And they, they were successful in 
taking these Germans back over and in turn uh, taking them hostage. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You could, I just, you know, I could just imagine Roy Bates just like, just love that, you know? Oh yeah. I mean, you know, Michael still lights up when he talks about that. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, who gets a chance to do something like that. And, you know, they, they said also that the, pilot was just beside himself because he was actually involved in a real raid this time not just like for a movie so you know everybody involved uh, just was able to like just celebrate the joy of this like insane uh endeavor their adventure they were getting into yeah man it's just so great my like face is hurting because i'm just smiling so much talking about this story it's so fun um yeah and then they yeah like you said they took some they took them hostage after that like specifically the one, the guy, um, Achenbach, right? Like they l- made him stay on, on Sealand with them or something. Yeah. Alexander Achenbach was kind of the mastermind behind this, but he only actually ever set foot on the fort once. It was his second in command, a guy whose last name was Putz, P-U-T-Z, Putz, which was kind of a <laughs> nice, uh, coincidence, but, uh, he had, you know, he was kind of considered the, the, ringleader for this attempted coup and so while the other guys um involved they were kind of negotiated their release since boots had been issued a passport you know he was guilt especially guilty of treason and so they made him they sentenced him to six months hard labor on sealand and an eighteen thousand dollar fine um but fortunately he was you know he, he had to make the coffee and clean the toilets and stuff they didn't you know they didn't treat him too badly or anything like that. And eventually, uh, this actually proved very beneficial for Sealand's, uh, status as a sovereign entity because, uh, a member of the German embassy in the UK actually flew out to Sealand to see what was going on with their kid, these kidnapped German countrymen. And so, you know, it was argued that an official, um, diplomatic operative from a from an another government made a point to go out to sealant and negotiate on a excuse me on a country to country level and so that kind of spoke for you know because germans tried to approach the british government the british government said hey that's that's not our problem they're out in the international international water so hence the german government going out to speak with sealanders directly which uh many argue uh and i would inclined to agree that that does qualify as some kind of recognition so um that worked out you know although it was kind of a roundabout way to do it that did work out sort of in favor of sealand's sovereignty or at least some notion of um, independence right yeah so they're they're saying you know like well this german diplomat was here and negotiating with us on like a country to country level so we must be a we must be a nation then Right, right. And, you know, of course, other people have argued like, well, official government agents negotiate with all kinds of different groups, but that doesn't make them sovereign necessarily. But again, sort of given the other considerations that go into uh, Sealand's claims for statehood, they're, you know, all taken together. It is a somewhat unique and different case that uh you know you could very easily at least make the argument that this did constitute some kind of serious recognition yeah i'll buy it i'll take it yeah no i yeah check the box for me so i'm into it for sure why not um 
what they did, this was interesting to me, is like they've had issues with kind of uh, like counterfeit passports and, and different things like that. And they even had a website that was selling that kind of stuff that they had no idea existed. And this is definitely one of my favorite aspects of the Sealand story that this foiled coup involving these Germans eventually blossomed into not only an exile government based in Germany headed by this Achenbach character initially, but it's, and we can talk about this later, but it, you know, they're on a, they're essentially not like kind of Aryan mystics on the search for this mystical energy source. And that's all has to do with sea land. And that's a whole other weird part of the story, but yeah, the, you know, as mentioned, these, uh, Germans were pretty accomplished uh, con artists. And so over the succeeding decades, uh, themselves and their associates issued bootleg Sealand passports, um, you know, doctorates, all kinds of different titles and, and various official bits of official rec- uh, documentation that they sold to people around the world. And so they had this whole cottage industry that really took advantage of um, Sealand's status as a sovereign entity, you know, for their own ends, um, to, to, again, you know, kind of traffic on their, on their name and their, their officialhood and what, what they'd accomplished. And the Sealandic family was totally unaware of all of this and had no part in these scams, but it just kind of, again, proved in a roundabout way how successful Sealand had been in advocating for its own statehood when this group of criminals was able to rip off countless people uh again you know with this veneer of official sealandum right yeah yeah because they were selling yeah like all kinds of stuff like passports and (laughs) doctorates like you said so i mean you could see how any you could take advantage of them so much by just kind of these like under the radar almost but official documents that people haven't really seen but how could you question it i guess yeah, I mean, you know, they were even using, um, you know, trying to use, you know, p- portray themselves as Sealandic government officials as collateral to get loans to buy like private planes. And they were trying to coordinate the purchase and sale of like missiles from the Russian mafia to sell to Sudan. So it got like, there's some, pr- some pretty serious, uh, you know, it wasn't just selling fake documents. There was some serious shit, uh, which again, you know, I, that's just so fascinating to me. I mean, I'm kind of partial to crime stories, but that was just like, you know, the breadth and scope of this uh, going on again without the true Sealanders knowledge was pretty, pretty impressive. Yeah. And they, they were, they were clued into all this. The fact that all this was going on when in 1997, when um, the Gianni Versace, the fashion fashion designer, was gunned down by the psychopath, and the psychopath in turn committed suicide in a houseboat. And in that houseboat was uh, a Sealandic passport because it was the houseboat was owned by somebody who claimed to be a diplomat from Sealand, who was almost certainly related to these sketchy Germans. So you know the Sealanders like just read in the newspapers that they're being (laughs) associated with the murder, the tragic murder of Gianni Versace. And they're just like, Whoa, what the hell's going on? And then eventually kind of learn the whole scope of this. And, you know, we're just completely aghast that uh, people were um, using Sealand sort of noble name for these like horrible purposes. Right. Yeah. Jesus, man. And then, uh, 
Yeah, can we tell you? You mentioned it, so let's just jump back to it about the uh, the government in exile and Achenbach and what these guys were were thinking. Um, I, I mean, you know, they. I think they're this whole like passport scam thing sort of is indicative of their mindset. It's like, how can we use this to to benefit ourselves and make money? I mean, I think it was more just like, um you know, however, however we can use sea land to, for our own purposes. Great. Um, and that, you know, that kind of ties into their Achenbach's past, um, as document forger, he was caught up in this huge German document scam in the seventies, which is what I mentioned earlier that the Bates weren't aware of. So this was kind of old hat for him. Sure. But, um, you know, he, his associates got even weirder, and he, the uh, prime minister of the government in exile in, of Sealand is, like, an even more just, like, off-the-wall, um, you know, just seems like kind of a sociopath almost, just one of those people that's, like, incapable of not—not not, incapable of telling the truth and just always sort of having all these fantastical stories. And so that's—he was heads up the Sealandic government in exile, who have also— petitioned um you know nations around the world for recognition but their whole reason for being is a little much weirder i mean they definitely kind of advocate for stealing sealand statehood but it's uh kind of in service of using it as a home base to like um channel what they call vril v-r-i-l this mystical energy source source yeah. uh you know they claim to sell these machines that channel vril that you know, kind of lead to limitless energy for everyone. And it's just this real, and, you know, like I went, I, I, I of course wrote to the government in exile and, you know, they said, if you send us $5,000, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get you hooked up with this drill generator. And I was like, you know, I don't have like, <laughs> you know, thanks, but no, but you know, I'd still like to talk to you and they're amenable to that. And then, you know, when I'm over in the UK, I was certainly planning on hopping on a plane to go to Germany to talk to this dude. Um, and, you know, a few days before they're like, yeah, just give us a $10,000 down payment and, you know, we'll, we'll show you how real powers an army tank. And, you know, oh, if I had yeah. unlimited funds, I would have, yeah, all right, here, let's just see what happens just for the sake of it. But unfortunately I wasn't in a position to give them $10,000 yeah, well, maybe just for who knows what purposes. So, you know, if anybody wants to fund that project, please get in touch with me. Cause I would happily write a sequel to it that, you know, kind of tracks all this down. Yeah. God, what would they, first of all, I mean, there's probably no demonstration you get to see anyway, but man, if they, what, whatever they would show, I would love to see what they're able to do, man. That would be so funny. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, they, this, leader of this government leader of the government in exile is um he lives on this weird old chicken farm that has all these old leftover russian military pieces from world war ii and so i like you know had maps of how to get to this guy's house like a friend in germany was going to go with me to translate like i was like ready to do this but yeah. it, you know like again it just kind of didn't come together so eventually it, it I would like to do that. And Prince Michael has also said like, you know, people have pitched that idea to him because they've, you know, he's never met anyone from the exile government and vice versa. So what would happen if he just knocks on the guy's door one day and, right. you know, kind of confronts him. So, you know, 
I would love to get that going and tag along on that adventure for sure. <laughs> right. Oh man, the story's just never ending. And then, so I love, so yeah, we're kind of at like the late nineties, we're hitting the two thousands and that's when like, you know, the tech boom starting to happen and, and the internet's coming around. And then, so that's the idea to have Sealand kind of become like a, like a data haven starts to show up, right? Where what they, they called it Haven Co. And they're, they're keeping servers there and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Cause at that point, um, as you mentioned, you know, the internet was just starting to kind of become a part of everyone's daily life, but there weren't really rules written yet for how that, how that works between governments and internationally and stuff. And so given Sealand's arguably sovereign status, um, this group of kind of these libertarian cyberpunks wrote to the Sealand government, pitched this idea of not really pirate internet, but certainly kind of in the same ideological headspace uh, of using Sealand as, as you would like a tax haven, except for, for internet data. So you could host, websites out there like gambling websites or pornography or whatever that might be illegal in your home country but since it's in international waters you could kind of skirt the restrictions that prevent you from from doing that kind of thing and so that really caught on with the bates family again hearkening the era the the pirate radio era that helped launch Sealand. and so yeah the beginning of the millennium was was characterized by this pretty groundbreaking and um technological endeavor which did get a lot of people paying attention because it was in in uncharted territory as far as international internet law and and data storage and stuff goes so it was a pretty pretty interesting experiment that a lot of people um you know were were very interested in and it seemed like it was definitely going to be a pretty pretty lucrative and and influential endeavor yeah but that just kind of what happened what was the outcome of that just kind of fall through well, it got so much attention that the people, the Haven Co. people setting it up were essentially spending all their time doing <laughs> interviews and and stuff. And so, you know, getting the, and flying back and forth in helicopters, which was extremely expensive and outfitting the place with all this, these servers and technology. And so, yeah. uh, you know, they kind of, I, I think if they would approach it from a, a little more with a little more experience from a business perspective, they might've been able to do something with it, but I think it just kind of imploded under its own, its own weight. I mean, like they had technological problems that far out to see, like their, their internet linkups and satellites stopped working. Like, yeah, it just kind of a lot of small things added up and it just didn't really get off the ground and they kind of burned through all of their seed money very quickly. And I mean, you know, they had a, a bunch of a bunch of customers, including the government of Tibet, I think, and some mostly gambling <laughs> websites. But yeah, unfortunately, I think they just kind of it was too big for it was just too big to actually pull off, and it kind of just quietly fell off. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think something too that we're as we're kind of talking about this, it's like the the. Um, the Bates family, they weren't, they weren't like criminals or bad people or anything like they didn't, they just kind of had like, they weren't the ones doing the, the, the forging of the passports or anything like that. They were just kind of, they loved the idea of like pirate radio though, where, right. you know, there was just kind of the freedom to do what you wanted. And that's, that's kind of what Sealand and the Bates family stood for was kind of, was that kind of, uh, 
mission statement, really, right? Yeah, it's like it's like principled freedom, I guess, in the sense that you know you kind of shrug off these needless government restrictions, but you're not using that for for any sketchy purposes. I mean, you know, Roy was this honorable old English gentleman, so you know he's kind of coming from that perspective for sure, where he's not you know using Sealand to. You know, he's challenging these what he sees as pointless laws, but it's not like they're trying to use Sealand to like, you know, again, boot like passports or like kill people or stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Um yeah, and then I mean just cut they've had so many endeavors on like a related to Sealand and their their family mm-hmm. and everything, but yeah, they were gonna do they were gonna try to get Sealand TV going, like broadcast some T V right. off there, right? Yeah, they tried to do that. They were going to, you know, they tried to register ships like their, um, what's that term? The, you know, ships fly a flag wherever they're registered. And um, they were trying to do that with Sealantic, you know, again, granted some, some more official recognition and recognition. And yeah, I mean, all kinds of just sort of minor um, business projects throughout the years. Um, fortunately now, um, Prince princes liam and james who are prince michael's sons who are millennials you know they're pretty internet savvy and so that's given a rebirth to sealand's recognition and reputation because oh it's allowed a lot more people to learn about it and then uh become supporters and you know fortunately um kind of for roy's dreams sealand is now a self sustaining operation through the sale of royal titles and various other bits of merchandise <laughs> yeah um, for the first time ever you know over the past few years they haven't been pouring their own savings or mortgaging their houses or selling furniture as they've done throughout the years to keep sealing the float you know they're they're able to pay these two full-time caretakers and pay for the upkeep of the fort which is um, you know, certain, uh, unfortunately something Roy didn't get to see in his lifetime, but it's definitely, uh, doing justice to his ambitions. Right. Yeah. No, it's very cool. Yeah. Cause they have, they've got their own website now where you can literally buy like, uh, well, they have like mugs and t-shirts and all that kind of stuff, but you can become like a, like a baron of Sealand or something. Oh yeah. Different, you know, different. Uh, levels of nobility um, for yeah, different prices. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Duke is what six hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah. Uh, whereas um, you know, Lord, Lady, or Baron is Baroness is only forty five dollars. So yeah, depending on. Man, that's so. What you want to do? And and there's a there's a huge uh, and growing Sealand citizen community where it's people who have bought titles and kind of all get together to to celebrate this, this cool, uh, secondary citizenship. And so, yeah, I mean, there's supporters all over the world. There's all, you know, always news stories about us and all kinds of languages and, um, yeah, just, yeah, it's, it's definitely grown in, in reputation. Yeah. Look at that. You could get, I could get like Travis at sealandlord.org. La- sea I could get an email. Man. This yeah. Is and just... I've certainly thought about, uh, Getting my own handle there. I just haven't taken the plunge yet. But I do have right. um, 
one of the little desktop flags on my desk. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, always in my heart. Yeah, there you go. Oh man, this, I love this. This is just so cool. It's so fun. So cool. And I'm glad that it's actually, you know, supporting them and they're able to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. You could get a, get a knighthood from Sealand. God, that's, that's going to be a, that may have to be a gift to someone this year. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I definitely have given my mom Sealand stamps. She's a big stamp fan, so add add these micronational stamps to the collection. Yeah, there you go. Oh, man. And then, geez, what else should we talk about? There's so much. Uh, Yeah, it seems like, of course, like they're going to make a movie out of this, but they've, that's been in the works, so they've tried a bit, but there's, there's nothing really yet, is there? No, and I, I think it's come close. I mean, there there have been scripts, there have been you know directors interested and things like that. Just for whatever reason, I don't know the ins and outs of Hollywood, but you know, just has never gotten off the ground. Um, I know that they are currently in some sort of discussion for that. So hopefully, a Sealand project will see the light of day at some point. Um, I, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, almost anyone I've talked to about this or, you know, who knows about Sealand is like, this is like an incredibly cinematic story. Like, why the hell isn't there a, a TV show or a movie yet? And so someday, hopefully it will. And that's why uh, Sealanders said they can't talk about my my book is because they've, you know, they've kind of using their own book as the basis for this possible movie. So right. uh, unfortunately, that that's why I haven't you know, we haven't done any joint publicity or something, unfortunately. I see. Oh yeah. That'd be cool, man. But yeah, it's, it seems inevitable that this is going to turn into a movie at some point. Yeah. And that's what, you know, that's what I kind of was saying. I was like, if you can just get me a, a background role as a German that gets beaten up or something, or just like, yeah, right. You know, I, I would love to just, you know, play some small part in that. And at the very least, you know, just seeing it on the bigger, small screen will be super cool someday. <laughs> yeah. That'd be great. And then, uh, yeah, we got to talk about their, their like Sealand athletics a bit too, cause they have a soccer team even. Yeah. They've played in, um, some charity soccer matches, you know, with some, some mid-level celebrities joining their ranks and the, the Sealand princes taking part. Um, and that's, and, you know, people have climbed mountain, huge mountains, Mount Everest was in Sealand's name. People have won, uh, martial arts tournaments in the name of Sealand. So it's been cool to see just how many people are interested in, in showing their support and take and bringing Sealand's you know, name to a, to a larger stage. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, sports kind of popular and obscure, alike. there's, there've been someone competing on behalf of Sealand. Right. Yeah. So cool, man. Well, damn Dylan. I'll oh, go ahead. And that, that was one cool thing that I've, another thing I've learned in my research is that there are these soccer leagues for disputed territories or, you know, minority populations and stuff. So Sealand has, you know, taking part in these with like in these tournaments with just very these teams made up of really cool people from all over the world right yeah no that's cool because it's it's kind of like a thing where um these like on teams that are recognized by like fifa or something can kind of come and join this right right yeah Yeah. other other territories of kind of disputed status or the romani people i think have a team and there's like a team representing this like brief Hungarian 
entity that existed for like one day in like the 1930s or something like that. Just, yeah, all, all just all kinds of cool, cool teams and leagues. So yeah, that's something else to explore at some other point. Right. Yeah. Um, so what do you think is the, the future of Sealand? Um, you know, I, I asked, um, Prince Liam about that, who again, you know, one of Prince Michael's sons, who's, who's, um, in his early thirties. And, you know, the idea of cryptocurrency obviously is pretty kind of runs hand in hand with what Sealand's about. So, you know, some kind of Sealandic cryptocurrency or something else involved with, um, the internet might be in the works. Um, you know, the idea of, of, I don't know if digital citizenship is the right word, but, you know, really kind of elevating what this, Sealandic sort of association means and kind of making something a little more out of that. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think there's definitely a sense of optimism in Sealand because again, the internet has kind of given um, new life to the Sealandic story and, you know, certainly expanded its supporters. So I think fortunately now there's enough interest and, and, um, finances that they they are able to undertake some some bigger endeavors Mm -hmm. yeah no it's great i'm I'm excited to see what like kind of where they go and what they do and it's it's Mm -hmm. just so cool to hear that the story that's you know started in the 60s is still going on it's still in the same family these you know the the prince uh what's their names now the two james and liam james and liam that they're still you know on board and seem to be you know kind of following in the footsteps at least for now it's it's cool great to hear yeah yeah i mean 53 years is no joke especially for something as difficult to maintain as this so yeah it's it's i'm very glad that this is still going on and that um yeah the sea sea land is this story is not over yet by any means yeah no very cool so and i mean this was awesome thanks dylan like love hearing the story thanks for your book yeah of course um so we'll mention your book it's called Sealand: uh the true story of the world's most stubborn micronation and its eccentric royal family uh anywhere specific we should send people to grab a copy of that uh i mean any you know online retailer should should have it uh your local bookstore should be able to order it i've even seen it pop up in random library collections all over the country so that's cool um but yeah, I mean, it's a very findable book. So just, yeah, type in Sealand book and you should be able to pull that up. Okay, cool. Well, great. Yeah, I'll have a link to, to Amazon or some other places where people can grab that for uh, folks listening. But uh, yeah, thanks, man, for sharing the story and for writing the book. I really appreciate what you do. So thank you. Yeah, likewise. I mean, definitely the breadth of topics uh, covered on your podcast is, you know, something after my own heart. I appreciate the deep curiosity on all kinds of different stuff. And I was just listening to, you know, auto racing for novices or the, whatever the title of that was. I was like, yeah, I don't know anything about racing. Like, this is a great thing to just right learn about. So yeah, that's, I, I appreciate you doing that as well. Yeah, I will well, plug you. real quick the, uh, my own blog, which is the yawning chasm.com. And that's, you know, okay. compilation of all uh, stuff I've written. I'm a staff writer at a, this cool website called Narratively that publishes all kinds of long form uh, journalism. So stories about um, possible UFO threats at a solar observatory, strange true crimes, uh, a treasure hunter kind of cursed by his own success. So please feel free to check that out at the yawningchasm.com. 
And I'm also on Instagram at Shakespeare underscore sucks. So feel free to <laughs> feel free to uh, follow me on that. Okay, sweet. No, thanks for sharing that. I'll I'll have links to both those too for people sure. listening. Shakespeare sucks. Nice. Yeah, okay. Slightly. T- I'm not 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 no Shakespeare fan, but not just sort of tongue in cheek and an obnoxious name. So no offense to all Shakespeare scholars out there. Sure. Yeah. I love it. Cool, man. Thanks again, Dylan. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate your time. And uh, yeah, enjoy your rest of your day and your weekend. Absolutely. Likewise. Thank you again very much. And that's episode 94. Told you it was good. It was a fun story, right? Sea Land's awesome. Such a good story. Can't wait for it to turn into a movie. Um, Got to think who could play Roy Bates and Michael Bates. Some There's got to be some good casting that'll happen. But uh Thank you so much to Dylan for coming on and sharing that story and doing all that deep dive research that he did for his book. Um, again, we'll have a link to his book and everything that he mentioned in the description for you to click on. Uh, thank you to you, the listener, for being here, uh, listening to this. Hope you enjoyed it. Maybe you know somebody who loves these stories like this of uh, independence and you know nationalism and everything. And uh, if you do, maybe send them this episode. Maybe they'd enjoy listening to it, like hopefully you did. Uh, I'm Travis. You can send me an email, travis at curiositynest.com. I'm on Instagram at travderose. And uh, I think that's all I have to say. I think that's, that's the end of the episode. So thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. And uh, I'll see you in episode 95.